I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Donald Trump and the Republican Congress are failing to repeal Obamacare and have so far done little to advance their reactionary legislative agenda. That's great news. But what Trump has successfully done is spread fear through immigrant communities by demonizing migrants and empowering ICE agents to sweep up pretty much anyone in the country without the right papers. And with Trump's Muslim and refugee bans, which are currently before the Supreme Court, the president has made bigotry the explicit cornerstone of immigration policy. But on immigration, as on other matters, Trump does not emerge from a vacuum. Mainstream Democratic and Republican politicians have for decades built a giant deportation machinery and militarized the border beyond recognition. And in doing so, they have only added fuel to the nativist fire that helped bring Trump to office. Today, my guest is Dara Lind, the immigration reporter at Vox. Immigration policy and politics are as confusing and complex as things get. And Lind is one of the few reporters who consistently gets it right in all the maddeningly cruel details. Dara Lind, welcome to The Dig. Good to be on. I'm hoping you can catch us up on immigration. The The Trump administration has so far failed to accomplish so many things, but it has no doubt succeeded in terrorizing immigrant communities. On a policy level, what's changed under Trump and how is that translated on the ground for immigrants and their communities? This is exactly the right frame to think about it, Daniel, uh, because the thing is that what the Trump administration is doing, while it is a pretty significant shift from the Obama administration, particularly the last two years of the Obama administration, on who's getting deported, who's getting apprehended for deportation, in a lot of cases, it looks more like what we saw under the first term of the Obama administration, when you know 400,000 people were getting deported a year, and he was getting stuck with the label deporter-in-chief. You know, in practice, the patterns we're seeing on enforcement and deportation are as follows. If you have a prior criminal record, even if that's a very, very old or very minor, you are liable to get scooped up for deportation. If you had a deportation, if you were ordered deported or were deported in the past and then came back, again, even if that happened 15, 20, 25 years ago, you are now liable to be targeted for deportation. And if you had come to the attention of immigration officials previously, but they'd kind of been like, eh, this is not the most important case to us, just keep checking in with ICE, you are liable to, at your next check, apprehended for deportation. All of these things are kind of the low-hanging fruit, right? They're people who were already in the system. We're not seeing huge sweeps, you know, indiscriminate sweeps through apartment complexes. We're not seeing huge workplace raids. We're not seeing the kind of deportation force stuff that people were really worried about under this administration. It's not a systematic approach to kind of tracking down and hauling in unauthorized immigrants. But it is sending a message. And the, you know, the Trump administration has been very clear 
no unauthorized immigrant should feel comfortable in this country. Everyone should be looking over their shoulder. Everyone should feel afraid. And that's been very successfully communicated, you know, to the point where anecdotal evidence is that domestic violence victims aren't coming forward. You know, parents aren't registering their children for public benefits. Um, There's a massive chilling effect that's been seen that is only partially reducible to the actual changes in policy that have happened. And that's partly a rational response to an administration saying, you are not welcome here. And if we see you, you may very well get caught. So it's this really odd situation where at least first term Obama and first term Trump on the policy level aren't so different, but the way they publicly frame their immigration policy couldn't be more different, while Obama sort of downplayed what was really a pretty massive uh, program of deportation. Trump is, um, you know, making those deportations a huge part of a PR strategy to scare immigrants who, who may very well not be touched by it and just spread generalized kind of um, apprehension and, and mayhem throughout throughout immigrant communities. Yeah, that's totally correct. I mean, the, the, the place where you really see this most clarifyingly is with the dreamers, the you know, people who came to the U.S. while young, who in many cases now have, you know, still have official protection from deportation, if temporary protection, uh, thanks to Obama's DACA program. Before DACA came around, Obama was saying, you know, we're not deporting students. And in town halls, students would like stand up and say, what the heck do you mean you're not deporting students and show them, show him their letter saying you have to show up in immigration court. Um, You know, it was that level of the Obama administration was just refusing to admit that the field immigration policy was not what President Obama might have wanted the field immigration policy to be. Um, Whereas the Trump administration, while the acting director of ICE is going in front of Congress and saying no one should feel safe, in practice, DACA protections still do exist for 700,000 people. While there have been some cases of agents trying to strip protections, and even in one case actually deporting someone who had had DACA previously, For the most part, that program is still intact, and actually Republican governors are getting pretty mad about it and threatening to to sue the administration if Trump doesn't get rid of it. But that's definitely a case where they're really hoping that the rhetoric does some of the work. There's been, and this is something that you're familiar with and that probably listeners who have been reading your work uh, are familiar with as well, there's been this theory of attrition through enforcement, right? This is what Arizona's SB 1070 was based on in 2010. It's been kind of the intellectual framework for immigration restrictionists for over a decade. And the theory there is that if you make it sufficiently miserable to live in the United States as an unauthorized immigrant, you can reduce the unauthorized population by as much as 50% without having to do a whole lot to actually deport people. And, you know, in theory, you're supposed to be using a lot of the tools in the toolbox to do that, not just making people deportation, but also making it harder for them to be employed by making mandatory, you know, electronic employment verification, restricting the access to benefits that U.S. born children of immigrants have, that kind of thing. Uh, The Trump administration isn't really pulling out all the stops on that yet, but they certainly appear to be engaging in something of an attrition through enforcement framework by saying, yeah, we may not deport more people than Obama is, 
But because any of you could be deported, you should, you know, that should be something that's hanging over your head. And maybe you want to consider going back. Yeah, we're basically maybe continuing the same pretty massive deportation policies of Obama, but we're going to make a huge and terrifying spectacle of it. Right. And this is this is the other thing, you know, right after the election, I was trying to think through, okay, when DHS was created, it created a situation, an incentive situation in immigration funding, where previously everything had been under INS, both the enforcement side and allowing people to come, you know, and facilitating people coming. When DHS was created by splitting that into separate agencies, it allowed Congress to funnel a lot of money to immigration enforcement through Customs and Border Protection uh, for the, you know, for border security and immigration and customs enforcement for the interior without giving any money to USCIS, uh, which is, you know, what facilitates visas into the country and which is entirely funded by user fees, which is just a, you know, great way to do things uh, to force people to pay multiple times to get their applications processed. Anyway, um, that created the kind of mass deportation machine that we've seen over the last decade and a half. And the way that the Bush administration used it, you know, they were still kind of building up this force and they used it on a lot of spectacle, right? If anyone who was familiar with and following these issues toward the end of the Bush administration remembers the Postville raid, which, you know, caught up hundreds of immigrants working at a meat processing plant, there are lots of cases of that kind of thing where the Bush administration wanted to use local partnerships and big, you know, big raids to get headlines that would then kind of have a reverberating effect. The Obama administration was, you know, created a lot of efficiencies in how ICE agents became aware of when immigrants were checked into jails, made it, you know, easy for ICE agents to go pick people up from local law enforcement rather than having to waste time and energy tracking them down, you know, in the community. It was this very technocratic set of tactics that were used. And in theory, you know, what they wanted to do was a technocratic strategy as well, where they were deliberately picking certain people to go after and certain people to let go. That only worked in the last couple of years of the Obama administration, but strategically that was supposed to be the goal. So, even though the Trump administration hasn't actually brought back all of the Bush tactics, most notably, we haven't seen workplace raids, which is an extremely weird thing for an administration that is not super beholden to the Chamber of Commerce, uh, to put it lightly. Um, but with the absence, you know, even with that not having happened, we are seeing to a certain extent what happens when you join the mass deportation theater of the Bush administration with this incredibly efficient, who knows how many immigrants they have in their database, uh, you know, machine of the Obama administration. So stepping back, uh, if you could go into a little more detail about what deportations looked like over both Obama terms. Um, there, He was labeled deporter-in-chief for deporting mm -hmm. a record number of people, but then there was a lot of pushback and was like, actually, uh, that's a misleading analysis and it had to do with things being categorized differently. What's your take on Obama's record and how it changed over those eight years? So, 
I think that it's really easy to, I, I think both of us are, are veterans of, you know, what I can call the removal versus return wars. Um, it's really easy to get bogged <laughs> down in terminology, especially because, frankly, the Obama administration saw a lot of distinctions that really no one else in the debate recognized as important. And I, I mean, like, no one else cares about them. And for the Obama administration, they really meant the difference between a good and bad immigration policy. Um, and, you know, I think that while there's still a little bit of talk about, oh, they're deporting people who don't have criminal records, the idea that some that having a criminal record or not was the determining factor in whether someone should or shouldn't be deported was never really a position that either side of the debate held strongly for immigration restrictionists, if you're unauthorized, you should be deported. For people who, you know, support some form of legalization, it often is the case that people with minor criminal records, especially if they have, you know, convictions for driving without a license, which in most states you can't have if you're unauthorized, um, that that wasn't ipso facto something that made you worthy of deportation. So I mean, it's a little bit good that we're now getting away from that a little bit. And with the benefit of distance, what you can see is that the Obama, the story of the Obama administration's deportation policy is kind of a story of a, a labor versus management conflict and not in the way that the left usually sees labor versus management conflicts, but where management in the form of the political appointees was trying to limit enforcement to certain people that it considered priorities, that being you know, criminals and particularly people who were convicted of non-immigration offenses, um, you know, people who had recently entered the United States, people who had come back and been deported multiple times. And the labor force, the field agents, having an institutional culture where they traditionally had a lot of autonomy and didn't believe that people in D.C. telling them what to do and telling them that even though they were in contact with a lot of unauthorized immigrants, that they shouldn't necessarily put them into deportation proceedings was appropriate. So you have a, a long conflict there over the first six years of the Obama administration. And in practice, that means that about 400,000 people a year are getting deported. Most, though not all of those, or many, though not all of those, are getting deported from the interior of the U.S., uh, and even those who are getting deport deported, quote unquote, from the border are in some cases people who have been living, you know, within the hundred miles, within a hundred miles of physical borders and therefore count as being in the border region. Uh, and many of them, you know, inc an increasing number of them over those six years did have some form of criminal charge or conviction, but it may not have been a major one. In a lot of cases, there was you know, they were being picked up by law enforcement, but there was no record or there was only a minor conviction in there's some evidence that local law enforcement officials kind of use this as an excuse for racial profiling. Right. Because if you pick up someone who looks like a Latino immigrant by the side of the road and it turns out he's unauthorized, then you can, sh you know, get ICE to ship him out. And that's great. So, you know, the extent to which criminal actually meant criminal was always a little fuzzy, but certainly over those six years, they got a little bit better at not deporting people from the interior of the U.S. who had no criminal records, but not a ton. And there were plenty of cases in which that was not happening, where they were deporting, you know, family or fathers of four who had just happened to be picked up, that kind of thing. 
Um, the real change in the Obama administration came at the end of 2014, when in a series of memos that included the DAPA program and the expansion of DACA, which were the ones that got put on hold in the court battle that ended in the Supreme Court last year, uh, there was also a new and much clearer than it had existed in the past list of what ICE officers should count as priorities and what they shouldn't count as priorities. And by all appearances, that got adopted much more rapidly and much more enthusiastically on the ground than previous orders had. So in the last two, two and a half years of the Obama administration, deportations plummet, and in particular, deportations from the interior of the U.S. plummet. There are still a lot of removals that occur at the border, often of people who, you know, had just arrived or who had been in the U.S. for not a very long time. There are still some removals. You know, there was a high-profile set of raids in early 2016 of Central American families who had not, who had been supposed to be in asylum proceedings but hadn't shown up to immigration court. Um, But for the most part, the Obama administration, after either not caring or trying and failing to implement its desired policy, basically got, you know, six and a half years of Obama saying that he wasn't deporting non-criminals and two and a half years of them actually doing it. And at that point, though, the administration's policy of um, formally deporting recent border crossers rather than just removing them from the country, uh, that continued. And it's not just a semantic issue. When someone's formally deported, if they cross again, they can be prosecuted for the federal felony of illegal reentry. And those prosecutions have indeed risen quite a bit in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the there's a theory here that has frankly not been totally proved and that the evidence is not super persuasive on that if you just throw people in jail for longer after you catch them crossing the border, they will be less likely to cross the border again. There is a little bit of evidence that over the 20 years that border enforcement has been increasing, that it has had something of a deterrent effect, but it's not clear what role the actual criminal prosecutions play in that. But you're right that this, you know, this formerly deported people who were apprehended at the border, which actually ironically started under the Bush administration uh, because immigration restrictionists were complaining about catch and release and saying that the only way you could successfully deter people was to formally deport them and make sure there were consequences. Um, so that, you know, the marriage of formally deporting people and formally charging them when they return has created the situation where right now the single most uh, common criminal offense in federal courts is illegal reentry into the U.S. The most, the busiest federal courts are those along the border. There's this massive backlog. It's not something that the court system is currently designed to deal with. Um, and that's been a problem. And the Obama administration knew it was a problem and couldn't never really got to the point of being able to fix it, although they did work to make it easier to just deport people who were apprehended at the border again without, you know, without formally charging them, but also without having them go through immigration court, which has also been hugely backlogged. Um, And now under the, you know, 
one of the big questions under the Trump administration is now that Jeff Sessions, who's you know a known immigration restrictionist, is attorney general, how much the U.S. attorneys who ultimately get you know placed into those spots are going to carry out Sessions' agenda of going really hard on prosecuting illegal entry and illegal reentry as federal offenses and what that's going to do to the rest of the federal caseload, right? If Sessions is simultaneously saying, we want to go after violent crime and you should charge as many people as possible with illegal entry and illegal reentry, what does that do to, you know, who's going through federal courts and how easy it is to get swift justice? Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the Dig and Dan Dumper are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the sh- show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, to support the show, go to patreon.com and look up the Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. Just to recap, under Obama, we have this, it doesn't start with Obama, but uh, under Obama, a massive uh, criminalization of the immigration system in a number of ways. One, in terms of through this program, Secure Communities, um, linking local law enforcement jails um, directly to DHS and ICE and allowing the federal government to use local law enforcement basically as force multipliers, um, Mm -hmm. both doing their work for them and um, they hoped uh, leading to the detention and deportation of uh, unsympathetic criminal immigrants who uh, no one would protest about the deportation of. Um, Obviously, that didn't turn out that way. And then uh, also the criminalization of immigration policy in terms of increasingly bringing criminal charges against people for the mere act of crossing or recrossing the border without authorization. Mm -hmm. And then in 2014, uh, you have these uh, new restrictions put in place, which do, um, they by no means shut down the deportation pipeline, but they do, they do for really the first time in the Obama administration, narrow it um, in a substantive way. And then we have Trump. There are some policy changes underway, especially in terms of those 2014 memos, right? In Trump's first week in office, he wrote, you know, he signed a bunch of executive orders. And for the most part, Trump's executive orders have been theater on immigration because there's so much discretion that the executive has, you know, and and something that people who aren't you know, who are used to economic issues really have trouble grasping is just how little Congress has to do with who gets deported. Uh, you know, it's, it's entirely a matter of budgetary authority. Who gets deported with the pool of money that ICE has to deport people is really an executive branch thing. Um, so the Trump administration said immediately after arriving in office, everything Obama said about who's a priority and who isn't a priority is totally null and void except for people who explicitly have, you know, deferred action, who have this official protection from deportation. Um, Everything else, like, you should be considered a priority if you've ever been committed or or convicted or charged of a crime, if you've committed a crime that you were never charged of, if we think that you probably committed a crime, which, 
given that illegal entry and illegal reentry are federal crimes, does describe a lot of people. And given that federal license is a local crime, you know, that in many cases, unauthorized immigrants are getting are getting work because they have fake identity documents. You know, there are a lot of things that just being unauthorized touches that could make you de facto criminal. Um, so that, in theory, opened up the ambit of what can be done very, very broadly. The question now is what they're actually doing. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, there are certain patterns that indicate that they're going after the low-hanging fruit first, that they're not just saying, well, we can do it, do it and therefore we will. Um, but I think the other question is, the Obama administration in individual cases that got a lot of attention, particularly sympathetic immigrant cases, right, where it was someone who was a college student or a, you know, a pastor or that kind of thing, when there was enough popular resistance and bad press, there would often be a quiet, phone call from Washington to the field office saying, back off, you know, give this person a stay of deportation, let them stay here temporarily, just check in with you guys. Um, that has happened in a few cases under Trump. It has not happened with the kind of regularity that occurred under the Obama administration. And it makes a certain amount of sense, right, that a Democratic president would be more sympathetic to the concerns of advocacy groups that are in the Democratic coalition, would be more sympathetic to Democratic legislators who tended to be the ones raising those concerns, uh, whereas a Republican administration is not. But we're not seeing, you know, it's, it's not a case where everybody's getting deported. Some people really are getting, you know, it's a stays of deportation after their cases become high profile. So what is determining that difference? And whether it's going to continue to persist or which di which direction it's going to trend is something that's very unclear. And frankly, that it is, is something that's worrying immigration restrictionists. You know, I'm hearing a little bit of concern that the, you know, the, the theory that I'm hearing is that Jared Kushner is somehow going to, you know, step in and say, we can't deport these kids anymore. Um, and they're going to, you know, start getting weak need on something. Um, but it, it is an interesting, you know, popular resistance doesn't tend to mean a whole lot to this administration, uh, but it clearly, bad press is something that government wants to avoid, and that appears to be true in this administration is the last one, if to a different extent. <laughs> and in a weird, different way. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, there, there is, uh, as you've pointed out, just discretion in enforcement and there's a lot of uncertainty over where uh, this discretion, how this discretion will be applied now that at least according to the letter of the policy, basically any unauthorized immigrant is a potential priority for deportation. Are we seeing ICE field agents um, exercising this discretion in terms of even if they're prioritizing the low hanging fruit, the people with criminal conviction, exercising this um discretion towards more aggressive enforcement in terms of when they incidentally uh, encounter other people during a raid looking for a particular individual detaining them and uh, putting them into deportation proceedings as well? So, I mean, what you're talking about is actually, it's, it's a pretty particular phenomenon. It's called collateral arrests. And that is something that has changed. But again, it's a pretty limited, you know, there are only certain cases in which 
ICE agents are even in somebody's home. Uh, the way that they really prefer to do things is to have somebody come to them or to have, you know, to be able to come pick them up in a jail. And this is where, you know, there, there's been a lot of, you know, news and controversy and judges and other members of the judiciary have stepped up and, and gotten mad about the use of courtrooms to catch unauthorized immigrants. And that's been because ICE agents really don't want to go out into the community to people's homes, any situation that they can't control, they absolutely have to. And going in somewhere where there are metal detectors and they know people aren't going to be armed is a preferred situation for them. So that's kind of a limited circumstance that you're talking about. The broader question of how do ICE agents how are ICE agents responding to all this is kind of similar to, and I'm not, I don't want to say, I don't mean to say that all ICE agents are Trump supporters, but there's a certain vocal faction of ICE agents that have been very politically involved under the, you know, under the Obama administration and resisting the administration. And now, you know, supporting President Trump, the ICE union has been very vocal. They endorsed President Trump, as did the Border Patrol Union during the campaign. And that faction feels great. You know, immediately after inauguration, they felt that the shackles were off, that they were being trusted to do what it was their job to do. How that's manifesting in terms of the choices that they actually make, there doesn't appear to be a massive change, right? Every single time, personally, that I read an article where the headline is, this person without a criminal record is being deported, I scan down and ultimately at some point in there, it's going to say, he was deported in 2005 and then he came back. You know, it, it really, I have not seen any of these kind of individual cases that have popped up here and there where it's a, wow, it is not at all clear why this person, why they came to this person's home and detained them and are going to deport them. Um, it's really hard to know whether though whether the cases that happen to get picked up by local or national press are dispositive. Uh, we're kind of playing a, an anecdata game right now. And, you know, who knows what kind of data ICE is going to provide or on what timetable um, and how trustworthy that data is going to be. Lord knows the Trump, the Obama administration's definition of criminal aliens changed like three times in the course of 12 months at one point. Um, it does look right now like what ICE agents are have responded positively to more than any particular policy change is the idea that they are the masters of immigration policy and that because they know the dangers, they should be trusted to handle the solution. You mentioned ICE agents staking uh, out courthouses to pick up immigrants that they're after. That seems to be in part an end run around sanctuary, so-called sanctuary city policies, which generally speaking refers to localities that restrict cooperation with ICE specifically around what are called detainer requests when ICE says, can you hold this person um, for at least, if, you know, uh, what is it, 48 or 72 hours? 48 uh, hours, yeah. 48 hours uh, uh, before you would release them so we can pick them up. And you have localities uh, refusing to abide by those in, in, in many cases. Um, but the problem is is that under Secure Communities, which has since been uh, renamed the Priority Enforcement Program, and now does it even have a name under Trump? Um, I think in theory it's now Secure Communities again. again? But the actual, <laughs> I mean, honestly, the actual timetable of when PEP was implemented, where, 
I I know that there are I there are approximately two people in all of America who probably understand it, and well, maybe some people in government. There are approximately two people not in government who understand exactly where that in, is and isn't, and I am neither of them. Um, well, so let's as journalists decide very, to call it secure communities. Yes, let's do that. Okay, yeah, because <laughs> when we let just like government decide like that, they get to rename something and that we have to follow suit. I don't think you know. I think we can call call a spade a spade. So this spade is called Secure yes. Communities Program, uh, initiated under Bush, but really rolled out under Obama, that basically connects a uh, FBI uh, fingerprint database, that database that localities uh, uh, put fingerprints into when they're booking someone into jail with the DHS database so that ICE can get mm-hmm. hits and determine when un- unauthorized immigrants are being arrested. Um, and you have this huge resistance to that under Obama and it and it, it 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 that resistance definitely I think has an impact. It makes ICE's job much harder. But these courthouse stakeouts show, I think, they indicate, um, we don't know for sure, um, uh, how ICE are, are are following these leads and building these 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 cases. But Oh no, we appear- totally do know for sure. They've explicitly said that they're in courthouses because sanctuary cities are preventing them from being in jails. They are very clear about that. They really do want to, you know, there is a big push on the part of this administration to say any problem you have with aggressive enforcement, with us being places you feel we shouldn't be, is because your local government is preventing us from being the places we should be. They're trying to turn it back on, you know, if you only allowed us to do this nice, quiet, we're picking people up at jails thing, you wouldn't notice us in your community so much. And maybe, you know, that that would be true if A, the people who were fighting sanctuary, had been fighting sanctuary cities to begin with weren't often unauthorized immigrants themselves and their allies who understood that there's a connection between how easy it is to deport someone after getting picked up and how likely it is you're going to pick up people for being unauthorized immigrants. And it would also be a little bit more logical if deporting if you know deporting immigrants more easily didn't mean deporting more immigrants, right? There's a there's a certain argument and I know that this is a conversation that, you know, people who who are skeptical of immigration enforcement don't tend to want to have. But in theory, if you're forcing ICE agents to do more difficult things like going to people's homes, they can deport fewer people. They're just doing it more aggressively, right? That kind of theater versus efficiency thing. The two are substitute goods at a certain point. Um, But yeah, the Trump administration really does want to turn this into a turn the entire fight over immigration tactics into a referendum on sanctuary cities. And, you know, they're doing so by saying that sanctuary sitters are letting criminals onto the streets, yada, yada, yada. They're taking unrelated uh, policy measures like the bill that passed the House last week that would increase the mandatory minimum for illegal reentry into the U.S. They were, you know, that was framed as some kind of anti-sanctuary cities thing because it's named after Kate Steinle, who was killed in 2015 uh, by an unauthorized immigrant in San Francisco. Um, But, you know, they appear to think that politically this is going to be the winning move for them. Of course, policy-wise, their actual attempts, their actual policy agenda on sanctuary cities has primarily been to threaten to strip them of funding, and they've been thwarted on that at every turn. Um, You know, a federal judge said that they couldn't even start to strip 
you know, existing funds based on whether they thought a city was a sanctuary city or not. The definition of sanctuary city that they've actually put out in any serious way is something that no city says they actually do because they, the only way that they can define a sanctuary city that is consistent with something that's actually in federal law that, you know, they can't just say we're going to invent this new uh, st- standard that you have to hit to get federal grants. They have to point to, here's this federal law you aren't enforcing. And the only federal law they can point to is uh, 1373 in the U.S. Criminal Code, which is no city or state can have a policy of refusing to share information with the federal government. Any city in America will tell you, we don't have a policy of refusing to share information with the federal government. That's not the same thing as refusing to honor this voluntary request to keep someone in our jail for 48 hours. So they are, you know, the actual defund sanctuary city policy is getting a little bit thwarted. Um, but instead, they're trying to create this, you know, political pressure on by kind of tr- taking a bank shot off the local resistance that's created sanctuary city policies and saying, well, if you don't like these things we're doing, just stop being a sanctuary city and we'll get much nicer to you. And looking at those 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 two uh, bills in, in Congress, the one to uh, increase penalties for illegal reentry and the one uh, on sanctuary cities, I think they really point to this level of surreality around the current state of the immigration debate that a lot of people might not realize. Um, on illegal reentry, that those were uh, charges and, and convictions that that have been rising rapidly under Trump's predecessors, um, and so it's not like this right, this far right nativist invention to to crack down on illegal reentry. Quite uh, mainstream politicians had embraced that in recent years, but it's now sort of been appropriated by the nativist right, and then uh, with sanctuary cities, it, it's so bizarre because they were really. Uh, a rebellion by by cities and immigrant rights activists on the local level against the Obama administration's uh, deportation agenda. But then the creation of those sanctuary cities was then used by Trump and the nativist right to paint liberals and oddly kind of including the Obama administration in a way that doesn't make much sense as um, uh, coddling immigrant criminals um, and putting American safety at risk. And then the other fun layer has been that since the election, a lot of not only local governments who had not already formally adopted policies on, you know, when they honor requests from ICE at local jails, um, you know, declare themselves sanctuary cities, campuses start, college campuses started declaring themselves sanctuary campuses, in some cases with an actual policy there of we will not allow federal agents onto our campus without a warrant, but in some cases just as a way to, you know, just as a gesture of solidarity, um, as a gesture of welcome to their immigrant students. Uh, There is, you know, the, the proliferation of sanctuary as this emotional concept at a time when a lot of liberals and progressives want people to feel welcome, despite the fact that they're in Trump's America, has detached it on the left from any real policy agenda to a certain extent, so that, you know, some of the places that have, many of the places that have policies limiting when local police will honor ICE requests don't consider themselves sanctuary cities. Some of the places that consider themselves sanctuary cities don't have policies on when local police should honor ICE requests. So it's it's gotten abstracted in, you know, it's, it's gotten annexed by the culture war um, in a way that is not 
super helpful. But also, what you know, what we've seen with this administration is that they appreciate being able to get wins. Um, and if those wins are on culture war issues, even better. And if those wins actually have policy consequences to many in this administration, that does not appear to matter. You know, to some in the administration, it absolutely does. And there's a reason that Jeff Sessions has been the point person on what counts as a sanctuary city because he cares a great deal. But it's in, it's been interesting to see this become a culture war issue because on one level, that means it may very well be more easily fixed. Rather than being this deportation and border militarization machinery that has been constructed over decades by entirely mainstream politicians from both major parties. Absolutely. I mean, if you talk to local immigrant activists who were kind of at the forefront of the movement to limit, you know, to to limit local federal immigration cooperation, um, they had a really hard time, especially during the first term of the Obama administration, because they had a hard time getting national immigrant rights organizations to take local fights seriously when they thought there was a possibility for you know, comprehensive immigration reform at the federal level. And they had a hard time getting Democratic local politicians to believe that there was a genuine threat to their populace being perpetuated by a Democratic administration. Um, One new policy that is being rolled out by the Trump administration is to prosecute and deport the parents of minors who travel to the U.S. border from Central America, where many are fleeing just awful, rampant violence. What is the purported aim of this policy? And did you expect it? And how do you see it playing out? So how much should I expect your listeners to understand the classic theory of deterrence? Um, I would give a uh, a, a, a short uh, pressy on it. Cool. Yeah. So basically, um, criminology has said for literally centuries that to have a, a to to make your criminal justice policy so that people don't want to commit crimes so that they're they'll be deterred you want punishment to be swift certain and severe um in recent decades it's kind of become clear that the really important parts of that are that punishment be swift and certain that the severity of punishment is not so important uh the reason that we've learned that in the last couple of decades is because we've been trying severity. And that's how a lot of how we have gotten mass incarceration and severity has not worked necessarily worked so hot. Um, but the Trump administration appears to believe that because in many cases, children who are coming to the U.S. without you know, without adult relatives are meeting adult relatives in the U.S. And because in many cases, those relatives have funded their children, you know, the children's journey to the U.S. by paying smugglers, that if you go after the adults who pay smugglers as essentially accessories to smuggling, then fewer people will want to pay for their children to come to the U.S. and therefore take the risk of getting, you know, apprehended, caught in jail, thrown in jail, deported, etc. I don't I have asked I do not have an answer from them on whether they have evidence that that is that 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 relationship is going to work out or whether this is just kind of a common sense well if we crack down on people they won't do it as much um the fact the complicating factor here of course is that and this is a lesson that the Obama administration also was really resistant to learning it's not that people 
don't know how dangerous it is to send a teenager through Central America and Mexico to the United States, it's that they've made the assessment that however dangerous that is, it's less dangerous than when they're what they're facing in Central America. Uh, so the Trump administration has so so far, you know, we've seen apprehensions at the border, especially of unauthorized or especially of unaccompanied children and of family units from Central America drop precipitously over the first few months of the Trump administration. You know, that is the result of a calculus that under Trump, it is in fact more dangerous to come to the U.S. than not to come. How long that's going to be sustained on simply the fact that Trump has declared himself tough on immigrants is not clear. How much they're going to be able to, in every single case where they're catching people, keep them in detention and deport them quickly when there's this little thing called international law that gets in the way when you're dealing with people who are fleeing you know, humanitarian concerns uh, is unclear. And because of those things, the calculus of when people are coming to the U.S. versus not isn't entirely in their control. And this, you know, attempt to end demand by going after parents in the U.S. is an end run around that. But it's not clear that it's really going to get to the core of the problem and change the calculus so that it becomes a bad idea to try to send for your child to come to the U.S. And that, of course, you know, then there's the humanitarian question of, if you could make it so that it's somehow worse to come to the U.S. than to live in gang-ravaged Central America, is that really a win? Yeah, I mean, I suspect that it that that this tactic might, you know, uh, quote unquote, work in the short run because Trump's threats and demonization of immigrants seems to have played a role in driving down uh, migration of Central American asylum. Uh, asylum speakers pretty pretty dramatically um so yeah it it might work but it just seems unbelievably cruel given what these people are fleeing right and you know everyone i've talked to on both sides says because immigrants are and it, it sounds it sounds like this shouldn't be true it sounds weird to say this and it does oversimplify you know, misinformation and how criminal, how, how smuggling organizations can somehow, can sometimes use like pricing and special deals to create demand where there isn't demand. But for the most part, people, even in the most dire circumstances, are making rational, fairly rational decisions with the information that they have about what the best option for them is. And in the, they haven't had information about what things will happen to them under the Trump administration so far, because there just hasn't been a lot of Trump administration. So the how long can this last question is on everybody's mind. And the restrictionists are concerned that without more of a showing of literally everyone is getting detained, who gets caught at the border, literally everyone is getting deported, no one is missing asylum, that I think things are going to rise again. But, you know, again, they can't if they if they even move close to that, they are facing massive lawsuits from the lawyers who have been watching conditions in detention centers for several years. They're facing, you know, a huge slap in the, uh, on the wrist from UNHCR because you just can't have a policy of sorry, you can't get asylum here. So it really a lot of the Trump administration, and I think, you know, something that has kind of come up in this conversation is the interplay between 
the message that they're sending and hoping that immigrants themselves take that message to heart and kind of do their job for them and the actual consequences that are imposed to immigrants who don't. And when it comes to the border flow, that is the relevant question because somehow the politics of this have shaken out is that when people are going up to border patrol agents and turning themselves in to seek asylum, that has somehow been treated as a failure for border security. So the only way you can solve that problem politically is to have people not come at all. And while you've written and you know, I, there's been some welcome attention to the U.S. kind of outsourcing its immigration enforcement to Mexico when it comes to apprehending Central Americans, really the only way to make sure nobody comes is to make sure nobody starts coming, nobody wants to come. And that's, you know, not as far as anyone can tell possible but it also is going to rely really heavily on this perception of you are not welcome here. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of The Dig. If you're hearing this, I'm currently in an undisclosed location somewhere south of Tijuana, finishing my book. I want to thank you all for listening to us for this first nine-ish months of our existence and thank those of you who have supported us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. We really depend on listener support to make this thing happen. So if you haven't already, please go to Patreon.com and look up The Dig. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. And for 10 bucks a month, we will send you a copy of The ABCs of Socialism from Jacobin. And for $20 or $25 or more a month, we have lots of other great socialist swag available. So, thanks very much. Greetings from Baja, California. And thank you for listening. And this this issue of um, frontline agent discretion is also relevant when it comes to Central American asylum speaker uh, asylum seekers asylum seekers um because uh there are reports that um agents are not giving asylum seekers the what's called a credible fear interview or um are ignoring uh assertions that on behalf that these asylum seekers are making that they do have a credible fear of returning to their their home country Yeah, I mean, and this is, you know, we're not even talking about the wall, which is good because thank heavens, um, I have talked more about the wall than I suspect several members of the Trump administration. But um, even when people talk about when people talk about the wall, the thing that always occurs to me is, yeah, but asylum seekers can present themselves at ports of entry and theoretically, you know, if you go up to a port of entry and say, sorry, I don't have papers. I'm trying to seek asylum. Here is the reason that I, you know, am under humanitarian threat. You should be allowed to stay in the U.S. if under supervision and, you know, prosecute your case. And you're right. There have been these reports. You know, Human Rights Watch has been keeping paying a lot of attention to this of people just getting straight up turned away um, when they try to present themselves for asylum or having what reasonably should be considered credible fear and just being denied. That is something that the Trump administration has indicated that they want to make frontline agents more restrictive in granting, you know, credible fear to people. This is something else where they're running up against international law pretty easily if they try to change it too much. Um, But we don't really know how that process, you know, whether there are 
strong internal directives or whether this is just a case of people who, you know, wanted to people who are skeptical that anyone is coming over the border because they have a legitimate humanitarian claim, you know, getting to exercise that skepticism. Um, But it's definitely it's one of those where it's not something you can quantify because how the heck do you know how many people are getting turned away from the border because they say that gangs are going to kill them and the border patrol agent or customs and border protection agent says, nah, doesn't count. Go back. Um, last, uh, but certainly not least, I want to talk about the Muslim and refugee bans, more anodynely known as travel bans. The Supreme Court recently accepted the Trump administration's appeal of federal court's rulings against the bans, and in doing so partially allowed portions of them that had been blocked by federal judges to be implemented. First, what's the status of the bans, um, and to what extent are they being implemented? Um, so as of last week, last week, as of you know the week before July 4th, uh, there is a thing that is in place that is called the travel ban that is not really happening in the U.S. It's happening at embassies and consulates around the world where people apply for visas. Um, Between the, you know, the first version of the ban that was in effect in early, you know, late February, getting put on hold after a week and then getting revised, a new executive order getting signed in March, that getting put on hold for a court case. And then finally, the Supreme Court in late June saying, okay, the ban can go into effect, but we're going to change the standard by which people can qualify to get around it. Um, the current version that's in place now is that if you come, if you're a national of Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, or Yemen, uh, and you're applying for a visa to come to the U.S., or if you're a refugee, you cannot come to the U.S. unless you have a bona fide relationship with a person or organization here in the U.S., That is not a thing that has previously existed in immigration law. And frankly, given that the Supreme Court spent like the last few weeks of the term smacking down the government in a bunch of cases where it said that a vague provision of immigration law was being interpreted overly aggressively, they then handed the government a new vague phrase in immigration law. A government Um, that more than any other would be primed to interpret it aggressively. Yes, indeed. Um, So... They listed some cases of what would count as a bona fide relationship in that opinion, and then the Trump administration issued some of its own guidance to department, you know, to diplomatic officials, uh, and were unsurprisingly super aggressive in how they, you know, determined a bona fide relationship, specifically when it came to family relationships. They didn't consider a grandparent to be a bona fide close relationship. They didn't consider a fiance to be a bona fide close relationship. That is has already been kind of added to the ongoing litigation over the travel ban itself. And in fact, the government has already walked back the fiancé thing. Fiancés are now counted as close relatives. And this is Um, all playing out in federal district court as the actual constitutional questions are pending before the Supreme Court. Right. Although the the fiancé thing was not changed because a judge told them to, it was changed you know, I don't, I don't know how exactly this went down, but it sure looked from the outside like they under, they realized that they were going to get a court challenge on it, that they might not win, and said, you know what, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get yet another bench slap on this. Because it's um, definitionally, definitionally absurd to say that a fiance is not a closely close relationship. You know, there are a lot of things in visa law that 
violate common sense. And there are a lot of things in visa law that are too, you know, that are from the outside, opaque and arbitrary. And there's really, you know, something that the litigation over the travel ban is kind of obscured is that there's actually a doctrine in federal court that you cannot challenge whether or not you should have gotten a visa. It's literally called consular non-reviewability. They've gotten around that by having the litigants in these cases being people in the U.S. who are saying, well, I'm hurt if I can't bring my, you know, my husband over, or I'm hurt if I can't bring this person over to teach, um, which is kind of what the Supreme Court was trying to cut off at the knees with the bona fide relationship standard. But really, the travel ban is kind of showing how a lot of the existing ridiculousnesses of who counts as a legitimate visitor to the U.S. versus someone who might be at risk to abscond, someone who might be, you know, at security risk, how how subjectively those are often adjudicated and how often that turns into national stereotyping, right? Like in the last week, a story about an Afghanistan, a, a girls robotics team from Afghanistan getting denied visas to come to the U.S. From a, for a robotics competition has gone somewhat viral. And the fact of the matter is Afghanistan was never in the countries that were supposed to be affected by this ban, right? Like, it, And it's not. This is not about the travel ban. This is about the con- consulate in Afghanistan had de- has, for whatever reason, determined that people who have this kind of profile, even if they're high school students, are liable to, you know, abscond into the U.S. if they're allowed to come here or aren't going for what they say they're going for or, you know, are terrorists in training or that kind of thing, that that's the kind of decision that happens all over the world, even without an executive order. And right now, it's really hard to tell the difference between decisions that are getting made because of the travel ban and decisions that are getting made because that's how the system works. Yeah, I mean, these decisions can be so arbitrary and unappealable and unreviewable far long before Trump came to office. And I think it was actually not that long ago that the Supreme Court ruled in a major case where an American citizen um, sued to appeal in an attempt to challenge her husband being denied a visa to come to the United States. And the Supreme Court basically said, well, yeah, that might be kind of unfortunate uh, or whatever, but we can't we can't look at that. Right. And it, it, they've kind of nibbled around the edges of the non-reviewability doctrine. And that's this is one of the underlying constitutional questions that when, you know, when the travel ban court case re- uh, is going to be kind of it's it, going to be one of the things they're taking up is there are definitely cases where constitutional rights are being violated that would be recognized or things that would be recognized as rights violations in other circumstances where it's okay for the government to do it if it's immigration because someone who's never been admitted to the U.S. doesn't have constitutional rights, essentially. Um, There are also cases in which you can say that if you don't allow a communist professor to come to the U.S. because to like give speeches because he's a communist, that that is a violation of Americans' freedom of speech. It's a really tricky balance to strike. There's a reason that most of the cases on this before the case you just mentioned are Cold War cases. Um, It's an area of law that, frankly, very quickly leads to the Supreme Court decision uh, that upheld Japanese internment. Um, It leads very quickly down a road of when the government says national security is at stake, the courts don't have a job looking beyond that 
you know, it's not the court's job to distinguish legit national security from fake national security. And leads back Um, to the Supreme Court ruling upholding Chinese exclusion as well. Right, right. It's there's this. And, you know, one of the very interesting things in the fact that the Trump administration has gotten its butt kicked, you know, so handily by every court but the Supreme Court on the travel ban is that the last time something like this happened was in there it was post 9/11 and post 9/11 the courts were extremely deferential um you know when there were cases of people being indefinitely detained of people being mistreated in detention the courts said you know what they said national security we can't do anything about that frankly um and it's been interesting that the there is there has not been any kind of there wasn't any kind of grace period. There wasn't any kind of realization among judges other than Trump getting elected and within five days and without obvious provocation instituting this ban um, that said, oh, you know what, maybe we've we've gone too far in this national security thing. They just kind of started pushing back. Uh, The Supreme Court appears to be a little more deferential. That's why they were the only ones to say, you know, this ban can go into effect in some form. Um, We'll see what that looks like in the fall. But, you know, I would be personally not at all surprised, given the way that this has happened in lower courts, if the upshot of this turns into actually we've thought about it and you don't get to discriminate based on religion, even if you're doing it in the name of national security. Whether or not they're going to find that the travel ban is discrimination based on religion is, I think, another thing. Um, But it really does seem like we're kind of headed in a direction where national security is – that phrase is not a magic word to at least some federal judges in the way it was 15 years ago. And – from from my perspective, this is a, a sort of silver lining of the Trump administration is that all of these kind of normal, horrible things that have been long time cornerstones of, of American public policy, the, he, he touches them and, and makes them suddenly uh, appear to be the, the toxic things that that they are. And in the case of the Muslim and refugee bans, these the, these bans that, however, uh bigoted um, and xenophobic they are in practice, um, they probably would have been allowed to stand and wouldn't have had any uh, successful court challenges if Trump hadn't said, hey, um, these bans basically are bigoted and xenophobic um, because he said he campaigned on a Muslim ban. If he had you know, shut his mouth and just said that these are uh, uh, from the beginning, like uh, we're going to impose narrowly ta- tailored travel bans in the name of uh, national security and not mentioned Muslims being horrible, dangerous people as a whole, um, mm-hmm. he probably wouldn't have a problem. Yeah. And I think, I mean, normatively, I'm super ambivalent about this one, right? Because while, thank heavens, we haven't seen the kind of civil unrest that might have been that there might have been concern about, you know, given what happened during the campaign, there is some evidence of increased hate crimes. There is some evidence of increased discrimination. It's pretty clear that beyond what Trump himself, what the Trump administration is doing, the tone of the Trump administration is having an effect on American life in American communities. And I don't want to brush that aside. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I, I'm not saying it's at worth the same time, it. Just a politically, silver lining. <laughs> no, no, no. Right, right. Like, politically, you're totally right. And this is something that, you you know, you mentioned earlier as well. It's really 
hard to imagine Senator Chuck Schumer standing up and saying, we will not give a dollar to anything, any, the construction of any new border wall or to any new ICE agents. That's wild. That's not something you would have anticipated even five years ago. Um, you know, when the, the Schumer, when Schumer was a little bit hesitant, even with the, you know, comprehensive gang of eight bill, that it wasn't tough enough, that kind of thing. The fact that this has become a culture war issue has meant that Democrats have shown up in defense of something that they can, that they would have considered unforgivably radical four years ago. And I don't know how much of this is just, it's easy to stand in opposition to something when it's someone as odious to you as Donald Trump and how much of it is that they have realized that there is a, that this is a matter of their base. It's not just a matter of, you know, like unauthorized immigrants are over here and Latino voters are over there and never the twain shall meet. Um, You know, we're we're not going to see how this plays out until really 2018 or later. Um, but I do think it's correct that at least for the moment, you have politicians who are willing to be, if not champions of immigrant rights and, you know, th- at least very vocal critics of immigration enforcement uh, in a way you didn't have even a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it was 2006 when the Secure Fence Act passed Congress um, oh, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, received a yeah. vote from uh, Senator Hillary Clinton and a number of other Democrats. Um, and it wasn't really seen as much of a thing at the time. Uh, immigration and border and enfor- harsh immigration and border enforcement were sort of uh, bipartisan, normal uh part of the bipartisan normal policy agenda. Um, but Trump, uh, while in, 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 in no way do I think it's, it's worth it, especially because he could start a, a new war any, any given day that uh, we wake up to find ourselves in one. Um, but th- there is a, a, for the left, I think, a huge opening in this, polariza- this new polarization that has made once, once normal things extremely controversial. Yes. And although, I mean, I do want to caution about that because ultimately the fact of the matter is that because administrative policy on immigration, while extremely independent of Congress and, you know, extremely powerful in the moment, can't ultimately legalize people, um, that the reason that the center left has said for ages and ages that the only permanent solution is immigration reform is because that's the only way to inoculate against a Trumpist or, you know, nativist executive branch. Um, And the possibility of that (laughs) does get a lot more remote as something becomes a partisan issue. Like, yes, the Secure Fence Act had widespread Democratic support, but then in 2007, a lot of the most onerous requirements of that got stripped out by Republican Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson. So, you know, it's harder to imagine something like that now. You know, Paul Ryan, who used to be relatively dovish within his conference on the issue of immigration reform, is now bringing these, you know, mandatory minimum and anti-sanctuary city bills to the floor. Whether or not he personally feels that they're a good idea or not, he certainly feels that that's something he has to do to appease the White House and his caucus. So I don't, I think that as far as building a movement, 
this is a tr- you're right. This is a tremendous opportunity for the left. As far as figuring out the next step in a an affirmative federal policy agenda that will not only keep immigrants from you know, that will not only provide some shelter or sanctuary for immigrants in the short term, but will actually, you know, help them succeed and integrate and no longer be in a liminal position in the long term. It's not quite clear what the path forward is for that in the age of Trump. Yeah, that's going to be an incredibly hard governing coalition to build. Daryl Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. Great to be on. Dara Lind is a reporter at Vox. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda on our behalf. And also find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.